if you've noticed that, but we did. Um, and I don't care what any of you say, but I cannot bring myself to consider Melbourne beaches as a viable option. Um, it just, I'm sorry. So if we want to have a weekend away now, you know, just to, just to get away from stuff and have a bit of a break, we had to come up with a different, different option, and that's how our family started camping. We'd never camped before, we never had need to, because we could go to the beach, and so we moved here and we took up camping, and we, we planned for an annual trip every year with our friends, the Malpasses, um, and then hopefully we might get in one or two other trips as well. We've actually got a, a trip coming up and one of the advantages that I'm anticipating of all this rain is that it should be really easy to get the pegs in. Um, <laughs> assuming the campsite is not underwater, you know. We, we have another family, friends who, who sometimes come with us, who uh, I will leave nameless, who they just rock up in their, you know, caravan, you know, and so while we're there doing it old school, hammering these pegs in, they're just there and they roll up and five minutes later they're set and it's like, yeah, living the dream. But anyway, we're, we're not bitter about that at all. But in seriousness, like, I, I really quite enjoy camping. I enjoy getting away from all the normal stuff. Because when you go camping, like there's really nothing you can do, is there? Uh, I mean, once you're set up, it, it just feels like time really slows down and, and your body begins to unwind. There, there's the green grass, the hopefully shining sun, the, the river rushing by, the, the fresh mornings, the, the warmth from the fire. I mean, for me, I just, I just relax. Life, life hits different when, when you're camping. But camping is fundamentally temporary, isn't it? I mean, even you grey gray nomads who, who go away for, for the winter, even for you, it, it's still a temporary experience. You know that you will come home again. And I think that the temporary nature is part of the experience, isn't it? Because you can put up with that slowly deflating air mattress, and you can put up with you know, waking with the sun or, or the birds. Uh, you can put up with the warm, long-life milk on your cereal, because you, you know... <laughs> just, being, just keeping it real. But you can put up with these things, can't you? Because you know it's only temporary. You know it's only for a time, and so you make the most of that time, absolutely. But you know it's going to come to an end, and you'll pack up, and you'll go back to your real life in your real home. Now, I don't know if they enjoyed it quite the same way that I do, but the ancient Hebrews, the, the, the Israelites, they, they spent a lot of time camping as well. They, uh, God saved them from their, from their bondage in Egypt and he led them out of that country through the Red Sea and then they spent 40 years camping in the wilderness. It's quite the commitment really, but... But here's the thing, that even though 40 years, I mean, it sounds like a long time, it is a long time, there is still a sense in which this experience was only temporary for them because God was leading them into then the promised land. And then once they were in that land, once they were in their homes and their houses, God then wanted them to still remember this experience because he had Moses tell them, you know, once you're in the land, 
well, one of the festivals that they needed to celebrate was the Festival of Tabernacles, where, amongst other things that they did within that, for seven days, they had to live in temporary shelters again. They, they had to live in, in tents. They'd go camping for the week. And I actually think that would be such a tease, because I, I, I kind of envisage, you know, there, there's the flat roofs on their houses, so they just pitch this thing up on their roof. And so, like, it's like their bed is just, it's just there. I just need to go downstairs and my bed. But no, they're, they're having the full temporary camping experience again. And while these ancient Hebrews lived in their tents, in their wilderness, God also chose to live in a tent. He, he localized his presence so as to dwell among his people in what was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, which was a special part of this tent where, where God dwelt. And again, though, it's a tent. It would be packed up and moved whenever God did. This was, this was always only ever kind of a temporary arrangement. And all of that then, maybe not my camping experiences, but, but the Israelite camping experience, is the context of our passage today that, that Sam has read for us. Because we start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, with, with the writer talking about the tabernacle, about this tent in which God dwelt, and all the operations of worship that, that went with it. And all this was part of the, the first and now old covenant, the old style of relating to God. And the writer is indicating that all of, all of that, as significant and impressive as it may have been, it was all only a temporary arrangement. You know, just like their experience in the wilderness, it, it may have been in place for a long time, but it was ultimately, in the big picture, only short term. It was because there was something more that was still to come. And so throughout this passage then, the writer is showing that that something more has come. That something more has come in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus, who, who John says tabernacled amongst us, is the presence of God with his people. And we've been seeing over the past weeks then that, that this Jesus, he's greater than the angels because he's God. He's greater than Moses, the, this pioneer leader of the people of God who saved them from Egypt because he affects for us a, a greater salvation. He's a greater rest, being a greater promised land. He's a, he's a greater high priest than those who had been established under the old covenant because his is a greater and an eternal priesthood. He's a greater and more certain hope. He's the greater mediator of a greater covenant between us and God. And we'll see today that, that as the greater tabernacle himself, he offers himself as a greater sacrifice that achieves for us a greater salvation. So let's dive in and, and see all of this. Our, our passage is, I've no idea where my water bottle is, our, our passage is long and it's pretty, pretty densely packed. So we're not going to cover everything in it. You know, if you're familiar with my preaching, I'll work through chunk by chunk. Don't stress, we're not doing that today. Um, but we're going to jump in and out at various places, so it might be handy to keep it open. So let's first look at how things kind of pre-Jesus, how those things are fundamentally less than what he is, uh, before we then turn and see the ways in which he's greater. And so the passage starts with the tabernacle, which we've already you know, kind of talked about a bit and already considered that it's a fundamentally temporary arrangement. But it's helpful for us to understand the tabernacle and what it was like, because that's not something that we would instantly understand like these um, Jews who it was written to. And so here's a rendition of it. And so first, 
you'll see, and it's not included in the description in Hebrews, there's actually this large enclosed area around the tabernacle itself. Uh, It kind of creates a a courtyard, if you like, before entering, getting to the tabernacle itself. And it's into this area that the people could come, but they could go no further. And so then you have the tabernacle itself, which was this rectangular tent within, within this larger space. And into the first part of the tent, called the the holy place, only the priests could go. So people could come into the courtyard, only the priests could go into that next part, the the holy place. And then there's this last part, which is kind of a third of the whole tent, that was then the most holy place, where God made his presence known. And our, our writer says here, that of this most holy place, in verse nine of uh, verse seven of chapter nine, he says, "Only the high priest entered this inner room, and that only once a year, and that never without blood. This blood was an offering uh, for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." And the writer then says that, that by this whole arrangement, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into that most holy place has not yet been disclosed. And so here we see the, the inadequacies of the, of the old and the temporary system. See, see, the most holy place is where God has his presence. And what the tabernacle shows us is that the way for us, you know, just ordinary average Joe people to be in the presence of God, that that's close to us. There are literal layers of distance and protection that keep us away from God. And only the high priest, and even him only once a year, is able to enter into it to make atonement for sin. He's not going in to hang out or, or relax. He's in there uh, you know, for, for a job, for a purpose. And, and so rarely in his life, there is limited access to God. More than that, the, the writer goes on to show that the sacrifices and the offerings of this system are of limited effect. The, the high priest enters with blood only for the sins. Notice this in verse 7. Only for sins that are committed in ignorance. In other words, there's actually no offering for an intentional, deliberate, purposeful sin. When you choose to say that angry word that you know you should hold back, there's no sacrifice for that. When you deliberately act in such a way that you know, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, when, when, you, when you're speeding, so when you're driving along and you look down at the speed and you go, oh, oops, I, I'm speeding, and you slow down. Sacrifice for sin, good. But if you're going, nah, I don't care what the speed limit is, I'm deliberately going to exceed it, there's nothing. There's a limited, the sacrifices are limited in their effect. And so the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper because they're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. They, they are about external regulations that then don't cleanse the heart. They don't make any internal difference. And so no wonder access to God is so closed off because we're still in our sins. And all the bloody sacrifices made, yet they could not deal with our sin before a holy God. And this is made explicit in chapter 10. When you look at verse 1, it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. They're not the realities themselves. And so for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly after year, 
make perfect those who draw near to worship. And then in verse 4, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, the whole tabernacle structure and the old covenant sacrifice and worship show us you know, access to God is, is limited. And the, the effect of all those things is, is limited as well. So, so what's the purpose of, of these sacrifices if they're just so ineffective? Why do they keep doing them? Well, we read that those sacrifices are an annual reminder for sin. And this makes sense when you think about it. See, we can tend to justify or minimize or even just plain forget that we've sinned until we're confronted with the, the consequences and the implications of it. See, we think it's okay to gossip amongst our friends until you notice that they're no longer sharing personal stuff with you because they no longer trust you. We think it's okay to look at pornography because it's just me, it's not hurting anyone until your partner discovers your secret. We think it's okay to take things from your workplace until you lose your job. It's okay, you know, to exceed the speed limit. I'm a good driver, I'll be right. Until you lose your license and have to pay the fine and, and walk to work. I mean, we are so quick to be okay with sin until we're confronted with the reality of it. And these sacrifices, these annual reminders for sins, these sacrifices constantly, regularly showed people the reality and the cost of sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The, the sacrifices and the constant pouring out of blood shows us that sin is serious, that forgiveness is costly, and that we are alienated from God. Though they were, you know, in some ways meant to be a means of drawing near to God, in reality, these sacrifices, I reckon more so they emphasize our distance from Him. Now, we remember that this is written to Jewish Christians. This is written to people who, who have grown up with the temple and with the sacrifices, who are, who are now coming to terms with what it means to, to follow Jesus as the Messiah and who are facing persecution and difficulty as they do so. And it would be much easier for them then to just go back to their, these old and familiar ways of Judaism. And in all this, you know, I realize that we're talking about you know, these, these Jews uh, and Judaism, but, but it's also relevant for us, as we'll see in a few moments' time. So just keep, don't, don't just write yourself out of this story yet. Because the writer, uh, through, through all this, you know, as they're considering, man, being a Christian, it's hard, I'm suffering persecution, uh, I'm being ostracized, I'll just go back to the old way of doing things. And so the writer then is continuing his constant message to them. And he's telling them to stay with Jesus because Jesus is greater. Because all we've looked about and talked about today so far is just the old covenant. It's merely a copy and a shadow of the reality and the substance of the good things that have now come in Christ. And so throughout this passage, the writer shows how Jesus is greater than these things of the past. See, they were only temporary, but he's eternal. They are a promise of things to come, and He is the fulfillment. Where they are the shadow, He is the reality. And so we read in verse 11 of chapter 9, But when Christ came 
as high priest of the good things that are now already here. Jesus is contrasted to the things that have gone before and he is shown to be greater than them. See, Jesus didn't enter the most holy place of our earthly man-made tabernacle. He entered heaven itself. And he didn't get there through the blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood. He didn't have to do this then repeatedly, year after year. He did it just one time, once for all. He didn't make people then only externally, ceremonially clean, but he, made the, he purified us all the way through. He didn't, like the annual offering, only deal with our past sin. He dealt with all of our sin, past, but present and future as well. He didn't just cleanse us from our sin while then we still remained in its power, but instead he took it away from us and he set us free from it and he broke its power over us. And as a result, he didn't keep us standing out in the courtyard, distant and removed from God. Instead, he tore down that curtain by his death so that we could receive the promised eternal inheritance. And so the passage logically concludes then, where all these sins and these lawless acts have been forgiven in Jesus, then sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary because Jesus has done it by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Jesus is the the greater high priest of a greater covenant who offers himself as a greater sacrifice. And and by doing so, he proves himself greater than Satan's sin and death as he achieves for, for us the great salvation that we so desperately need. And the point of the, that the writers of the Hebrews is making is that all those things of the old covenant, they were always only ever temporary. They were limited and they were partial. They were, they were copies of a greater reality. They were a shadow that pointed to the substance. See, in the tabernacle, there was a lampstand, but Jesus is the light of the world. There was the consecrated bread, but Jesus is the bread of life. Incense was offered up to God, but Jesus offered up his life. In the ark were the the stone tablets of the law, but Jesus writes the law on our hearts. The high priest could only occasionally go into God's presence, but Jesus lives there eternally. A curtain kept everyone out of the most holy place, but Jesus tore it down. The tabernacle was where God dwelt, but God tabernacled in Jesus, and now through him, he dwells in us. The priest offered sacrifices of bulls and goats, but Jesus gave up his own life. The blood of bulls and goats achieved just a partial pardon, but Jesus bore all of our sin, bearing it away and achieving for us then a complete forgiveness. The sacrifices had to be repeated day after day, year after year, but Jesus did it once for all. The priest stood to do their duties with no chairs to be found anywhere because their work was constant and ongoing. But Jesus sat down, his job done. The sacrifices of the priest could not make anyone holy, but Jesus has made us holy forever. Jesus is greater. This is the constant message of this letter. Jesus is greater. And yet, just like those original Hebrews, who it was written to, we so easily then take our eyes off him and we orient our lives away from him. 
And I think there's at least two ways in which we do so. The first is, as it was for these Hebrews, it's, it's easier to go along to get along. It's easier to downplay Jesus in our lives, uh, Jesus and, and his place in, in our life, um, because it certainly makes our life more comfortable. I mean, for, for these Hebrews, pulling, pulling back from Jesus meant that they could fit in again within their families and their, their community, and they'd avoid the persecution that was coming from them. And, and the same can go for us, can't it? It's easier to go along to get along. It, it's easier to sleep in and take it easy on a Sunday or, or to get jobs done around the house than it is to turn up and, and to be at church. It's easier to drink more than, than you should while you're out with mates than it is to not drink at all and be teased or mocked or, or at least questioned about it. It's easier just to, to swear just like your, your school or your work friends than it is to stand out by not doing so. It's much easier to you know, sleep with your girlfriend or, or your boyfriend than it is to, to honour God, to honour marriage, to honour them and yourself in purity and self-control. It, it's, it's much easier just to go along to get along and to kind of pull back from Jesus. But the message is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And so, yes, following him is hard. I mean, after all, he tells us to deny ourselves, take up a, a cross and follow him. And where, where did his life lead? It led him to a literal cross. But he's worth it. Because why would you settle living in a tent and drinking warm, long-life milk on your cereal when, you, when there is a house right there in front of you with all that goes with it? Why would you settle for the shadow when the substance and the reality is available? Why would you settle for less when the greater is there? Jesus is greater. So why would we pull back from him in the ways that we so easily can do so? But secondly, I think like these Hebrews, we can also look to other things than Jesus for our salvation. And I know I'm saying that to a room presumably full of Christians who would give verbal and intellectual assent to, yes, I trust in Jesus. He's the only means of salvation. I believe in him. I trust him. My faith is in him. All of that. We know that it's Jesus who saves. We get that and we can say that. But so often our lives actually tell a different story to the point where maybe, maybe we even need to consider that we're fooling ourselves when we say that we have faith in him. Because, see, some of us can think that you know, going to church most weeks, giving money to a charity, being a good person, and most especially of all, you know, just not, not killing anyone, that, that these are the things that will get you into heaven. And, and that might not be your exact list, but, but these are the equivalent of the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats that the Hebrews had. But just like um, those sacrifices, they're, they're partial, they're inadequate. And rather than giving you the confidence, you know, Rather than giving you confidence that, that you're okay with God and you're knowing Him and relating to Him, that should actually make you realize just how far off you still are. Because this passage says that these things never did and they never will establish your relationship with God or secure your eternity with Him. Never did, never will. 
It's only Jesus. It's Jesus and only him. What he has done through his death and resurrection is to achieve for us once for all an eternal salvation with our sin completely and forever dealt with. Nothing we do can compare with that. No sacrifices we make can compare with what he has done because he is greater. And so all else, it's a, it's a copy, it's a shadow. It's temporary, it's passing away, it's partial, it's limited, and therefore it's inadequate. And it's superseded by Jesus. And so it's to Jesus that we come in faith and trust because he offered himself as the greater sacrifice for sins to give us a greater life than we could ever imagine, a life with God, a life in all the fullness that he intended for us to have. And so we're going to come to him now as we share in communion together. Now, I want to say taking communion does not save us. But just like the sacrifices of old, communion reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. It shows us the seriousness of our sin. It took this great and glorious Jesus dying on a cross to bear our sin in our place, to take our death and to bear our wrath. That's how serious our sin is. But communion also then reminds us of the wonder of, his, of God's grace to us because he actually did that and chose to do that and in love did that for us so that we don't have to. And he then rose to life and has given us his now eternal life with the Father. And so communion doesn't save us, but it serves to remind us of where our faith really is. That our faith and our trust is in Jesus, the one who is the greatest sacrifice. The one who is greater than, than all, all things. And that we would continue to follow him and come to God through him. And trust him in all things. So, so let me pray, and then I'll invite you uh, forward to, to share in communion together. God, we thank you for, for your word. And our passage today talked about all these kind of old things that, that aren't in place in our lives anymore, that, that we don't naturally understand. But through looking at it, we see just how inadequate our own man-made, human, temporary efforts are to come to you. And we've seen again and afresh just the gloriousness of our Saviour, Jesus. He's so far greater. And as he offered himself as the greatest sacrifice, he, he dealt with our sin once for all, completely, forever, job done, to enable us to move through all those barriers that kept us from you and to be able to enjoy intimacy and closeness with you, to draw near to you, to, be, to run to you as a father and to experience your embrace in the grace and the mercy that's shown to us through Jesus. And so we just thank you for him and we worship him and adore him. And we, we want to take communion now, to take bread, remembering his body broken, taking the cup, remembering his blood poured out. And we want to do so, and, and as we do so, I should say, God, remind us deeply and profoundly of the reality of our sin and the costliness of our forgiveness. 
but may we then also just glory in your grace that was shown to us through it. That what we could never earn, what we could never deserve, you yet freely gave to us. And may we then not pull back from Jesus because it's easier, or may we then not fool ourselves into thinking our own ways of, of doing stuff are, are good enough for you, but may we instead constantly and always continue to have faith in Jesus. May we hold on to him. May we stick with him because we know deep in our souls that he is greater. And so we pray this in his glorious name. Amen. Church, just while you know, the, the band plays some music, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Come down the center aisle and then out to either side and, and grab, take some bread and as you're ready, eat that. Take the cup and hold on to that and we'll drink that together as people who together have experienced uh, the great salvation of Jesus. So let's share in communion together now.